They'll try to hold you back. And they will say you're wrong. <laughs> but they will never understand the podcast <laughs> that you're on. <laughs> I love how you did it all nasal and horrible. <laughs> I'm trying to try to channel the crappy credits cover energy, especially the the singer. I have to look up her name because I've never Maya. heard of her. Maya. I am. I think I'm assuming that's how you pronounce it. M.Y.A. Got me swinging. But she's she puts maybe it's me. <laughs> but she puts a little spin on the last word on the on. But she can't quite commit to it. It sounds like so it's like, oh, uh, uh. <laughs> Uh, 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 are we still recording? <laughs> so, so I tried to I tried to get it right. Mm. Only one song in this movie, obviously, the credit song. Yeah. Strap in for more of that. <laughs> Pl- plenty of just a credit song coming up. <laughs> this this one's totally forgettable. Uh, did you see when they were working on the movie, the shirts they had made up? Yeah. It was Atlantis. Fewer songs, more, more explosions. explosions. <laughs> yeah. I could never remember if it was fewer or less. Bit of a problem with this movie, I would say. Certainly a problem for our intro, unless you want me to go. <gasps> podcast. <laughs> and with that absolutely horrible audio handed off to Brad, let's start the show. <laughs> And welcome to me, Mom and the Mouse, a podcast about the joy of watching cartoons with your family. We're watching every film in the Disney animated canon and talk about how it was made, what it means, and why we love it or don't. Oh, don't. Oh. <laughs> my name is Isaac Coleman, and I'm joined as always by my mother, Rue Coleman. Hello, Isaac. <laughs> we want to give a special shout out to our editor, Brad Murray at Oak Studios. Thanks for all the work that you do, even though you have distilled the debt. <laughs> this week on the program, we are continuing Disney's experimental era with 2001's cult classic Atlantis, The Lost Empire, directed by Gary Trasdale and Kirk Wise, a massive financial bomb that led to those two never getting to work at Disney again, at least on a feature film. <laughs> I think they show up and they do a small thing here or there, but this was it. This is this is a career killing film. <laughs> Mom, what does this movie mean to you and your career? <laughs> I don't know that it means anything for my career. I'm pretty sure I had only seen this movie once, maybe before we watched it here. I cannot remember if we showed it to you guys at all when you were kids. You can talk about that when you get there. But I'm pretty sure I didn't see it in theaters. I think we probably rented it from Blockbuster or something. And I was trying to remember why I hadn't liked it more at the time. And I looked up what movies were coming out at the same time as this. Shrek had come out one month previous. And I know we went and saw that in the theater. And I remember we laughed so hard when we saw that movie. I remember thinking that was the probably the hardest I'd heard your dad laugh in the theater in a really long time. And then it also came out the exact same weekend as the Lara Croft Tomb Raider movie. And I really like that movie. And it kind of has a similar vibe with, you know, a quest. Definitely. 
epic quest to ancient civilization kind of stuff. And it kind of did it better. So I just was always like, eh, it was okay. <laughs> it was fine. I was trying to remember, doesn't that Laura Croft movie have something to do with Atlantis? Is that the second one? I don't recall it being anything about Atlantis in the first one. I've looked it up on Wikipedia. It's not, but I don't know. There's something. It's This is like so many movies. Here's the thing. Lara Croft, there is definitely stuff about Atlantis in some of the Lara Croft video games, the Tomb Raider video games. I don't know that there's anything about it in any of the movies, but, you know, it's lost civilization, blah, blah, blah stuff. So, you know. Right. This is like so many movies of the late 90s, early 2000s. I mean, it gets compared to Stargate, of course, a lot. You know, the main character, especially like. Mm -hmm. I mean, Indiana Jones a little bit. Yeah, five or six like Roland Emmerich movies. Obviously, Indiana Jones is the first and best of this kind of movie, but we're on the precipice of like national treasure. Yeah, uh, if I'm not mistaken. So, yeah, it's it's all it's it's the time for this sort of movie. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned showing it. to I don't know to what extent this was shown to us. I can't remember the first time I watched this movie specifically, but I know this was heavy in the Isaac and Isaiah blockbuster rotation. And even more so was the sequel. This sequel is definitely the direct-to-video sequel I have seen the most, Atlantis (laughs) Milo's Return. We'll get to it. Yeah. Having seen it again now, I'm actually not surprised. Uh It is a movie that I think is much more enjoyable if you're a kid. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we, we watched this first one. You know, a fair amount as well. I thought so. And I always kind of thought it was fine. Like, even though we rented it quite a bit, like, I never remember loving it. I just remember being like, you know, oh, that that movie's enjoyable enough. It's funny. And I like deliberately watch it again in high school because I had friends who had grown up with this movie. And like I say, this one is a cult classic for sure. Not a lot of people love it, but the people who love it. Love it. There's a lot of people who say this is the best Disney movie or their favorite Disney movie. People I know and people that I went to high school with. Mm -hmm. So I was like, all right, let me give that thing another shot. And I am not the first person to say this, but I, you know, I liked everything until they get to Atlantis and it's a bit boring. (laughs) And then I didn't watch it again until this week. Still remembered it pretty well. And uh, that's that's still my take, to be honest. Yeah. It's it's a good movie. It's a certified good movie. Mm-hmm. I enjoy it. Mm-hmm. It's watchable. It moves fast. It's fun. Of the flawed but pretty sci-fi experimental era films made by canonical animation directing duos, I prefer <laughs> Treasure Planet. <laughs> If I had a nickel for every time that happened, I'd have two nickels, which isn't a lot, but it's weird that it happened twice. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I think I get why it's some people's favorite, because it is so different. Yeah, And the characters are so likable that if you connect to them, you can probably ignore the fact that the plot's kind of stupid. It obviously has one of the most diverse casts of a Disney movie, even to this day. Right. Which is obviously very cool. Uh, you know, again, it's and it looks great it does it really does i wasn't sure how it was gonna hold up because you know so many of the ones we've seen tarzan looking at you i mean not looking at you you (laughs) it looked really good i never felt like these characters aren't interacting with the backgrounds i think that the art style they chose really works yeah 
they did a good job with this one and it holds up in how it looks. It's a shame because this movie and Treasure Planet, again, were both super expensive. We're both these crazy passion projects and they really kind of pushed the limits of what 2D animation could do. Right. With the mix of CG and and computer generated elements. And obviously the whole thing is made with computers and the more traditional looking 2D elements. In fact, this movie utilized a version of the multiplane camera, a new version of the multiplane camera for that final shot that they really wanted to get this like perfect pull out, Mm -hmm. pull back, whatever you call it. So like these movies really push it to their limit, but they're so expensive and they both don't make their money back at all. And so Disney puts the, you know, kibosh on it. And it's like, right, you know, they do 2D movies for a little bit, but they're pretty cheap. And then they decide like, well, Pixar is super successful and all their movies are CG. Yeah. Uh, the Disney animation is not successful at all. And its movies are 2D. Ergo, the answer is to kill 2D animation. Yeah. Not you know, get better story writers, maybe. Yeah, or, exactly. you know, have some songs for goodness sakes. <laughs> Even the Pixar movies that aren't musicals have songs like a lot of songs. Yeah. Randy Newman all over Toy Story. You got, you know, and several of the others. <laughs> well, yeah, you got the Monsters, Inc. has the fun, uh, you know, wouldn't have nothing song. You got songs. It's nice. And uh, this movie is, again, violently opposed to having songs. <laughs> so I, I think it's a bit of a shame. I think this is kind of the peak of Disney's 2D animation, in my opinion. And it's it's downhill from here, at least for 2D. Again, with Disney, because like Howl's Moving Castle is a Japanese film that also does this super well, maybe even better, the blending of 3D and 2D. The actual moving castle is just one of the coolest pieces of animation ever. Yeah. So, you know, Japan got it. <laughs> now they've, they're starting to move towards CG too, and it's, it's very sad. Well, it's a little sad, whatever. So this movie started shortly after The Hunchback of Notre Dame was completed. Trousdale and Wise met with Don Hahn, and the screenwriter, Tab Murphy, funny name for a person. <laughs> and Tab Murphy, who had also been uh, the screenwriter of Hunchback, also Tarzan, <laughs> and also about to be Brother Bear. So he's, <laughs> I mean, he's really zero for four. <laughs> I give him partial, partial credit. He gets a C plus for Hunchback and Atlantis. Uh, and then an F for Tarzan and a drop out of school. He gets it. He gets an expulsion for a brother bear. <laughs> but uh, they met and they're like, what movie do we want to do next? And they're like, maybe a 20,000 leagues under the seas movie. Yep. From there, they got to Atlantis. Mm-hmm. And uh, the original story of Atlantis, it was, you know, relayed by Plato. And it's basically like Atlantis is this city that is super corrupt and they have they're all about like luxury and wealth they're all about pursuing wealth rather than inner beauty they end up declaring war on the whole world they're trying to colonize the entire world it's very much kind of an anti-imperialism story poseidon gets fed up with them and the last part of the story is actually missing but it is presumed poseidon 
floods them, wipes them out yep. because it was his island to begin with. So it's his responsibility to to clean it up. And it's being compared to Plato's vision of ancient Athens, which is all about cultivating inner beauty. And again, wealth and luxury and imperialism are bad and not doing those things is good. So that's the story of Atlantis, basically, yeah. which, you know, is maintained for this. There's kind of a throwaway line at the end about like, oh, I used our power for war. Are you buying this? <laughs> of course I am. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so they, they were inspired by that. Obviously, the story kind of comes out of there. But then it's also the 20,000 leagues under the sea where it's like, what if old timey explorers in a nifty Retro sci-fi submarine. Yeah. You know, a little bit steampunky, a little bit steampunky. And it's even a little bit, you know, journey to the center of the earth. Yeah. So get, get those Jules Verne vibes in there. But the really interesting part of the development is, of course, all the work they did to build Atlantis and design it. They didn't want to just do a Greek city. Yeah. Which actually makes sense because Atlantis in the original story is not supposed to be a Greek city, but mm-hmm. because it's a Greek story, everybody's like it's Greece. Yeah. It was actually supposed to be an Egyptian city, I believe, or around Egypt. I do like all the research they put into basically trying to combine bits from, you know, heritage all around the world to make it like some proto architectural style and language and yeah that's really the idea they latched onto and with of course the language as well where they got mark okran who designed the klingon language to come up with an atlantean language so it's like a full language which yeah it's very silly to me because you only need like six words for this movie they actually do have quite a bit of conversation though i had forgotten how much conversation they have in Atlantean during the movie. I also never knew until we were researching for this podcast how much effort he'd put into it, because in all of the promotional things and stuff for kids that came out, it was always a simple cipher for the Atlantean language. Like, here's the alphabet A through Z, and here's the Atlantean characters that represent A through Z. And I'm like, big whoopee ding dong, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So you made a cipher, like that's boring. (laughs) But in fact, they they only did that for the kids stuff. Like they actually developed a proper language, you know? Full grammatical structure. Yeah, I know. (laughs) It has to be read left to right on the first line, then right to left on the second, and so on and so on. Yeah. To simulate the flow of water. Yeah. So it's a language that you read like water, which is crazy. <laughs> like I think there have been other languages that read like that, but not very common. <laughs> there are. Well, there were. That's right, the thing. right. There they're, were. They're only super ancient because <laughs> as language develops, like any other technology, we were like, Hey, that's sort of stupid. That's <laughs> sort of a waste of everyone's time. <laughs> well, you know, when you're reading, you do have to map to move your eyes both directions. So you might as well get some words on the way back. <laughs> <laughs> but can you imagine, like, you have to know words forward and backward. I'm imagining trying to, like, 
type that, you know? I feel like that can survive the printing press or the computer. Well, and the computer, as long as it's auto, you know, formatting, you just type in order, right? And then it takes you to the (laughs) end of the line and then you go back. (laughs) Well, but think about, I'm just thinking, you know, this is me as like, you know, working in digital marketing, think about website design. Like, you know, when you resize a page and now all the text is on different lines. (laughs) (laughs) Hell on earth. Right. Yeah. So they really, again, that's the idea they latched onto is that like this is the proto version of everything. Everything came from Atlantis. That's kind of their idea. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I don't know. That's basically it. Like, I don't feel like there's too much to say about the writing of this movie because it's like they watched Stargate and took notes. <laughs> Or any of those other movies we were talking about, you know? Yeah. There are some interesting, like, different versions of the story that they went through. Like, at one point, the mole was going to be kind of like a professor. (laughs) And it was apparently story artist Chris Urey, who had the wonderful idea to make him, quote, in his words, a horrible little burrowing creature with a wacky coat and strange headgear with extending eyeballs. Yep. I like how all of the secondary characters have very distinct silly characteristics, most of them. I'm trying to remember what we were watching recently where it felt like everybody was very samey, samey. And it's like, I can't. Dinosaur. Dinosaur. I was like, I know we were just talking about that and how we couldn't tell anybody apart because it was like, could, could I have some, you know, slightly different something to tell who's dinosaur? Yeah. It's a hundred percent. I mean, I don't know if that's exactly the one you're thinking of, but that is a complaint we made with dinosaur. The secondary characters in this are so good. The secondary yeah. characters in this make the movie in every way. And I was thinking about that, like the character designs and just the fact that even though you don't get a lot. You only get the briefest introduction to each of them. Yep. I can remember all of their names, like without looking it up. Like it's, you know, Mrs. Packard, Cookie, Dr. Sweet, the mole, Vinny, Audrey. Yeah. Rourke, Helga. Right. Exactly. You can remember them all off the top of your head, which is great. And, you know, some of these other movies, it's like, who was that again? I will say I do have a hard time with Kida. <laughs> Because you want to say Kira. I want to say Kira or Kiva or something like that. I know three of the letters, but that third one of the four really messes me up every time. Well, let me help you out. What do you eat hummus with? I Kita don't. Bread. <laughs> I don't eat hummus. It's got garlic. All right. All right. How about this? How about this? Somebody, you're a co-worker. You're at work with somebody. They're being a real jerk with you. You go out into the parking lot. What do you do? Uh... Kita car. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. Uh, so they actually um, used a, a wider aspect ratio for this film. Yep. Basically the like the cinemascope format. Yeah, they didn't do it in actual cinemascope, but no. Raiders of the Lost Ark was in that. And again, that's if you're going to make an adventure movie, you, you have to pay homage at the, you know, the Lost Ark. I did think it was interesting that because they didn't want to have to buy everybody new desks of bigger size and different shape (laughs) to be able to animate in that style. They basically just like shrunk down the papers. So like they pretty much had to, I think, draw everything slightly smaller than they normally would. Does that make sense? Yep. Which I thought was amusing. And of course, you know, the, the big get the big thing I think everyone knows about this movie is that they got Mike Mignola 
the comic artist behind, amongst other things, Hellboy and the whole Hellboy universe Mm -hmm. with his amazing art style. He was one of the four production designers and they they really relied on his work a lot. I think the relationship was not dissimilar to using Gerald Scarf Uh for Hercules. And much like Gerald Scarf, when approached to do this, Mike Hellboy Mignola was like, what? A Disney? (laughs) Want me to make a movie for kids? And they were like, yes. It just looks so good. It looks so good. I don't think the version on Disney Plus is restored at all. Part of the reason I think that is because the credits retain an advertisement for the interactive (laughs) CD-ROM you can get of the movie, which pleased me a great deal. And it's awesome. We got James Newton Howard, speaking of the one good part of Dinosaur, back to do the score. Yeah. It's got a nice theme. Sounds good in in general. He, He doesn't miss. And then it made no money. Yeah. Because as you say, it got it got killed by Shrek. People didn't like the Disney movies. It also did was hurt by Tomb Raider. Didn't do well. Famously. Well, somewhat famously. I've known this fact for a long time and thought it was funny. Mm -hmm. The most profitable Disney animated movie of 2001 was, in fact, the TV tie in film. Recess School's Out, <laughs> which I will say we owned. Yeah. And as I definitely watched way more than this movie. <laughs> yep. We all watched Recess. So much so that when I tried to watch it as an adult, having not seen it as a kid in college, I tried to rewatch Recess School's Out and couldn't enjoy it because I still just remembered every single scene and moment and plot beat. (laughs) I'd given it easily a decade and it still hadn't been long enough since the last time I'd seen it. (laughs) That's funny. That is how many times I've seen that. Would have been an interesting bonus episode. Instead, we have to talk about the inferior (laughs) 2001 anime film Atlantis the Lost Empire neither of us could find out what's with the Last Empire subtitle which I maintain is very bad that you don't like it having the subtitle I don't I just think it was I don't know it feels like more the style do you think if there had been sequels it would have was it gonna be like the Indiana Jones thing I don't know maybe where it's like Indiana Jones the Raiders of the Lost Ark Indiana you know we'll have Atlantis the Last Crusade also yes yes hang on just a moment Stop your tweets. I know it didn't. It wasn't Indiana Jones on original release. I know that you get what I'm saying. Please. Yes, yes, yes. I was thinking maybe they liked it because you could say it's sort of a a pun. It has a double meaning. Atlantis, the empire that was lost because it was swallowed by the waves and went down into the earth. Also, they were lost because they lost their way and turned, you know, they had turned their crystal to war instead of healing as it was supposed to be counterpoint <laughs> i just the things i think about when i haven't got enough to do yeah let me offer a counterpoint no nobody thought of that it wasn't yet you know the now times when all of the disney movies just get to have a one word title okay that's all it is i don't know i mean i guess that's true i guess we do have some long titles around here emperor's new groove but like i don't know dinosaur i know but there's a lot more i think it could have just been called atlantis but it's fine it's fine it doesn't bother me mom you mentioned shrek earlier mm-hmm. you remember the uh, song at the end of shrek 2 which of the many <laughs> well I- i'm referring to uh, live in Lakita Loka. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to help me remember her name is Kida, I see. <laughs> <laughs> 
Mom, why don't you take us through the cast of this movie? It's an interesting cast. I don't know all these people. It is. We've got Michael J. Fox as Milo James Thatch, our main character. Of course, um, most famous, I think, for the Back to the Future movies. He was also in a TV show called Family Ties back when I was younger. Not that I watched it much, but I definitely saw ads for it all the time. And of course, he was the Teen Wolf in Teen Wolf. Exactly. Yes. Although I've I've recently I found out that people don't know about the original movie. They just know about this TV show now. Oh, really? Made huh. me feel old. <laughs> <laughs> there was a movie there before yeah. it was a show it was a movie. It was yeah. Michael J. Fox. And it was not <laughs> it's not even a very good movie. No, but it's kind of funny. Yeah, it's fine. It's watchable. Originally, Milo Thatch was going to be a pirate. He was going to be a descendant of uh, Edward Teach, Blackbeard. Right. But then they were like, mm, what if he sucked instead? What if he was lame? <laughs> I also think it's funny that Michael J. Fox was offered, supposedly, apocryphally, he was offered either this or Don Bluth's final film, I believe, but certainly his big uh, sci-fi hubris bomb, <laughs> Titan A.E., Yep. And uh, he picked this one instead. I think he made the right choice. Because he asked his kids, his kid, which one should I do? And they said, you should do Atlantis. <laughs> we got James Garner as Commander Lyle Tiberius Rourke. I don't know that they ever said anybody's full names, but apparently they had them. <laughs> yeah. I think they say all the names or most of the names in full once. And it's, they're probably on the the pages, you know, that the dossiers that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whitmore's got on everybody. I'm sure he's going like Vincenzo Santorini, demolitions expert. Yeah. So James Garner, of course, was an actor for a long time. Very famous for being in Westerns and things like that. He was Maverick for a long time. <laughs> there was a Maverick TV show from like the late 50s to early 60s. And then again in the 80s where he played the same character. He's in the movie The Great Escape and several other things I've seen. Like I didn't list them all. <laughs> I think he's good in this. He has yeah. a lot of funny dialogue that's just like, I don't know, weird faux military phrases. Yeah. You know, and, and idioms. He's he's quite enjoyable. It's this character could use a little more like character, but he, he's doing a fine job. He's not yep. a cackling maniac, but I think this is a fine villain for a fine movie. <laughs> Cree Summer as Kita. You want me to try her full name? <laughs> Kita Gakash Nedak. Gesundheit. She was a voice actress since her teenage years. She was a Penny on the original Inspector Gadget TV show. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and she did a voice on the 2004 Clone Wars shorts. She was Luminara, where I recognized her voice, even though she's only got like three lines in that show because, you know, they're short. And I was like, who is that? I recognize her voice so much. Why do I recognize her? Well, not just because I've heard her in a billion things, but because of this movie, because she's talking about crystals in the Clone Wars episode. And she's talking about crystals, of course, in Atlantis. And the way she says crystal is the same in both. And I'm like, oh, that's what it was bugging me so much when we watched that Clone Wars. 100%. Because she has the whole speech in the Jendi Tartakovsky Clone Wars about, yes. you know, the crystal is the heart of the blade. The blade is the heart of the Jedi. The Jedi is the heart of the crystal. And in this, the crystal is the heart of Atlantis, you know. Exactly. So 
Very similar. Very suspicious. And we even have heard her recently on Kid Cosmic, where she's Queen Jean. Oh, yeah, totally. Right? As soon as I saw that, I'm like, of course. I recognize that. But yeah, she's, I mean, so many voices. Yeah, and still working. Yeah. You know, still got like credits in 22, but yeah. Uh, let's see. Don Novello as Vincenzo Vinny Santorini. Mm-hmm. Mainly I've only seen, apparently he has a, a signature comedy character he does called Father Guido Sarducci. Yes. That he played in a ton of things. And I think that's all I've ever seen of him before this. He's hilarious in this. He's really good. <laughs> I don't think he's doing the same speech pattern he does as Father Guido, but... No, not not really. Apparently he can do more than one thing. And in this, uh, apparently he, he... A lot of his dialogue was improvised. I could believe it. Which is surprising because his jokes are so sharp. They don't sound like improv jokes. They sound like they had to have been written. Maybe he worked them out early. <laughs> <laughs> or it was just that good. Phil Morris is Dr. Joshua Strongbear Sweet. Yep. He also has done a lot of voice acting in some TV. I didn't really see anything that he'd done that I was like, ah, yes, I've seen him in that. Other than, you know, Atlantis. <laughs> Claudia Christian as Lieutenant Helga Katrina Sinclair. And she was a main character in Babylon 5, Susan Ivanova, which I have watched some of recently. Never watched Babylon 5 when it was new, but... We've been watch- we watched some of it more recently and it's OK now. <laughs> it was probably <laughs> really cool at the time. <laughs> yeah, she's actually done a lot of video game voice work as well, mm-hmm. like specifically video games. So a lot of video game voice actors in this. It's true. I just like that we are casting voice actors as voice actors again. I think that, again, especially for these secondary characters that have to be established so quickly, it helps to have these professionals. And Father Guido Sarducci. (laughs) (laughs) Jacqueline Obradors as Audrey Ramirez. And she was in a lot of TV shows as mainly I've seen. One of the things I know I saw her in was an episode of the show Grimm. Yeah, apparently she was in that Palm Springs movie that came out in 2020, but I don't remember her character. But I don't know. I believe it. Glad she's still getting work. Yep. Florence Stanley as Wilhelmina Bertha Packard. Mrs. Packard, usually in the movie, she was the waitress in a goofy movie, presumably who gives him the happy breakfast. (laughs) Right. The one line. It's a funny line. Yes. I don't know if you ever saw any of that dinosaurs TV series. She's the grandma on that. I never really watched a lot, but I, you know, I know of it. I watched that when it was new. Uh, Jim Varney as Jebediah Allardyce Cookie Farnsworth. (laughs) (laughs) If you say so. Jim Varney, of course, most famous, I think, for Ernest P. Worrell Mm -hmm. was his main character. He's also, of course, Slinky Dog in the Toy Story movies. In the first two. Yeah, in the first two. Because they recast him because of what you're about to say. Because he died. (laughs) He died during the making of this movie. I think they had to record one or two lines with somebody else. But mostly it's all his work. It's, he's pretty much doing the same voice as Slinky, I feel like, in this. Yeah. Which I hadn't ever really thought about the fact that he was Slinky until I was looking him up for this. I'm like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. You, you may be embarrassed to know that I actually watched a bunch of those Ernest movies and quite enjoyed them when I was a kid. That's not embarrassing. I don't know. Some people think they're super dumb. Well, 
I mean, we're we're doing a Disney podcast right now. <laughs> I'll be honest, I don't believe I've ever seen an Ernest movie, so I have no strong opinion, but I know people who, who like it. I've, I kind of want to give it a shot. Mm-hmm. And certainly he's he's a good voice actor. I know he's just kind of doing the voice that he does, but it's funny. It is funny. Corey Burton as Gaetan Mole, Moliere. Yes, bad French accents, bad French accents. Yeah, we haven't had one for a while. Always funny. And Corey Burton, of course, is a prolific voice actor. He's done, you know, additional voices in several of the movies. This is the first time he's had, you know, major named character. In a Disney one, I should say. It's like you can't even narrow down like what he's been in. Oh, I know. Uh, Was it animated? Then yes, probably. Mm-hmm. <laughs> here's here's a funny one I saw while looking him up. He is the voice of Judge Doom in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, mm-hmm. just for the part where he's going, I talk like this. <laughs> what? But you know, he's yeah, as you say, he's all- I didn't do that part. <laughs> <laughs> but as you say, he's uh, he's already been additional voices in Aladdin, in Lion King, in Goofy Movie. <laughs> Yeah. Hercules and Mulan, and he's had several pretty large roles at this point. He took over a bunch of the Disney legacy roles like Ludwig von Drake. Yeah. Weirdly, he's done a lot of roles that are now being recast in live action because like he was Dale, but not in that <laughs> new Disney Plus thing. And he was Cad Bane, but not in uh, Book of Boba Fett. So <laughs> he's a great guy to get replaced with somebody much worse for a bad live action version of his animated character. <laughs> Poor guy. But yeah, loved Corey Burton. And the performance is the mole is so funny. It's <laughs> it it's is. absolutely killer. It is. Every line reading is not. It's not just the funny French accent, although, yes, obviously, you know, you can't go wrong. But the specifics of every line reading <laughs> Disturbed to death. <laughs> it's true. We have uh, David Ogden Styers back for a couple of lines as Fenton Q. Harcourt, one of the museum directors. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, obviously, we know who he is. If you've been watching all these movies in order with us, you will indeed, <laughs> when you hear that character, go, "Oh, that's David Ogden Styers." Yep, John Mahoney as Preston B. Whitmore. Uh, the only thing I really recognized him from is he was the chief editor in the Hudsucker Proxy. Yeah, I don't know. I think I mostly know him for this, which we should say this was such a VHS trailer. <laughs> uh, I suspect because we were watching it with Isaiah, who had not seen it since childhood. He didn't remember seeing it at all. And he like remembered every single trailer line and every single trailer beat Even the scene at the end of the trailer that's not in the movie. I think it must have been on something you guys watched more than me. Here's my suspicion. I think because they came out the same year, maybe it was on Recess. Recess School's Out. Yeah. Alternately, maybe it was on Emperor's New Groove because that was the year before. But my guess is Recess School's Out had this. But yeah. And so almost all of his lines are also in the trailer. So that's why I especially remember him going, you know, this is exactly what I wanted to hear. But forget the robot, son. (laughs) It's funny because I think you've also seen the trailer for this movie more than I have, because presumably it was on one of those VHS 
movies that you guys watched way more than I did. I told you once we got to the experimental era, it was going to shift. I would be more familiar with these movies than you. And here we are. The prophecy. The prophecy has come to pass. The prophecy of time (laughs) is marching on. And then uh, we have Leonard Nimoy as Kashkakim Nedach, the king of Atlantis. Uh, Was this guy in anything else uh, of note? Um, yeah, he was Spock in <laughs> Star Trek. Oh, interesting, interesting. Yes, so it's a couple of ties to Star Trek with this movie. <laughs> it's true, and didn't you say, like, everyone was intimidated when he was recording? It's not that they were intimidated so much when he was recording, it's that they were just in awe. So everybody was so astounded at his voice talent. They said he had so much rich character in his performance, Whenever he spoke his lines, the crew would just sit there and watch him in astonishment because he's just that good. You know, the animators would watch all the voice actors while they performed. So they would, you know, draw little sketchy ideas as they were trying to get the characters nailed down. I mean, Nimoy is was, in my opinion, like truly a once in a lifetime talent. I mean, the reason he's so good in Star Trek, part of the reason Mm -hmm. they used him for that is because they're like, All right, we need an alien character, but we don't have the budget to, like, do more than a basic effect, like making his ears pointy. We need someone who can look like an alien and sound like an alien without having anything alien about him. Yep. Leonard Nimoy was like, let me introduce you to my weird face. (laughs) I do think it's funny that Nimoy would so often get cast in roles like this where he's playing, let's say, an ethnic character. Despite the fact that he was Jewish and nothing else. <laughs> it's like <laughs> at a certain point in history, it's like, ah, Jewish, that's that's enough. Ethnic. That's ethnic. <laughs> He's a good voice in this. Like, again, he has a good voice and he knows how to use it. But man, this character is a waste of screen time. <laughs> <laughs> Most of his lines are in the Atlantean language. <laughs> right. And just him being like. Here's the deal with the crystal again. (laughs) I fear outsiders. Is it too late in the movie to do the Tarzan thing? Oh, it is. (laughs) Well, guess I'll die. (laughs) Is it time to talk about the movie? (laughs) Yeah, sure. Let's do it. So we open with a Play-Doh quote. Bit big for your britches there. A Disney movie. Well, you know. The first reference to Atlantis. I was thinking how we open with the Walt Disney Pictures logo underwater. Ooh, it's shimmery and blue. I mean, this opening's very cool. You know, we get the cool CGI fighters like flying in front of the, you know, the big tidal wave. And then we get our mom status. Chosen by the crystal. (laughs) Mom status. Goodbye. Sucked up into the crystal, never to be seen again. Abducted by aliens. (laughs) And we see little Kida. She is a child. She doesn't know what's going on, but she loses her mama. Oh, well, many years pass. (laughs) (laughs) It is now Washington, D.C., 1914. Milo is giving his little speech about Atlantis, very much like the scene from Stargate. And again, 40 other of these movies. Oh, yeah. Where he's giving his speech about his crazy theory. I want to go to Iceland to find the Shepherd's Journal. It's the way to find Atlantis, blah, blah, blah. And then we see he's not actually doing his presentation for real people. He's just got pretend (laughs) people he's practicing on. And he's actually working in the boiler room. 
and they call down to him to be like, fix the boiler. <laughs> There's a lot going on here that's this sort of silly, like they thought it was Ireland. It's actually Iceland, whatever. Yeah. Setting up, by the way, a whole expedition that doesn't happen like this. This expedition to Iceland uh, doesn't happen. Yeah, which is a little weird. What do you think of the character of Milo? He's all right. He's kind of funny. I think he's sort of dweeby and annoying. <laughs> I don't care for him too much, which is why I have a real problem with the part of this movie that's almost just him for a long time. Yeah. And I feel like this opening scene doesn't do enough to make you like him. Yeah. Other than being like, he's a nerd <laughs> and he's obsessed with Atlantis and his grandpa's dead. But I don't know that that's not enough. I feel like the best Disney movies, you know, establish the characters. And again, this movie elsewhere, like establishes the character very quickly. Like I care about every single one of the secondary characters when they're introduced because they're all interesting and they kind of have a bit. And you're like, I want to see more of this. Yeah. Milo's a little too. I've seen this character before. And what are you doing to make him different for me? You know? Yeah, exactly. Okay, so he's a nerd explorer. What what you know, what else? I do like the scene though where he's he's going to actually try to do his presentation and the members of the board are all running away from him and hiding. No, no, I don't want to hear about Atlantis again. I got the impression they had deliberately rescheduled it so they didn't have to hear his speech. Oh, they deliberately waited until after the meeting time. Like he's supposed to do his presentation at 4:30. At 4.05, they send a message saying, your scheduled presentation time has been changed to 3.30. Since you missed your scheduled presentation time, too late. Mm -hmm. Bye. And then they're all running off. And he's like, no, I must tell you my presentation. And they're like, don't let your passion for Atlantis kill you like it did your grandfather. I feel like they should have established that thing with the grandfather a little better, maybe. like Everything should have been established a little better. Some of the stuff in this movie happens too fast. I feel like some parts of this movie are too fast and some parts are too slow. The, really, the pacing is one of my few complaints about it. They wrote a 155-page script initially, and the first two acts, they timed it out and realized... The first two acts alone would be 120 minutes. So they had to cut it way down. Yeah. And this movie does. It feels at points very rushed and very cut down. Yeah. Especially this opening half, which is the more fun, interesting half, in my opinion. Sorry for continuing to say that, but <laughs> I think they rather than being like, OK, we'll do the same story, but we'll cut it down to the bone. It should have been like, all right, let's write a shorter story. Like a shorter version of it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do want to call out just a great David Ogden Steers line, which is him telling Milo to take a trolley to the Potomac and jump in. <laughs> yep. You want to take a voyage? Yes. But uh, he goes home. Helga Sinclair is there. And she's like, I'm taking you to meet my boss. She seems very um... hot. <laughs> yeah, but also attractive. She is. She's a very attractive but also fierce woman. True. This movie has strong female characters and also kind of it does and it doesn't. It wants yeah. to have its cake and eat it, too. I do think it's interesting how everybody's got kind of their own little bit of style. Her animation style looks so much like she's a right out of a comic book to me. Like yeah. they're all kind of based on that comic style a little bit. But 
she more than most, I feel like. I agree. There's something about her that looks a little different. The angles of her eyebrows and yeah. stuff like that. Also, again, you know, not to keep being gross or whatever, but she does have a little bit of like Jessica Rabbit. A little bit. Both in the animation style and in, you know. But yeah, so we're going to go meet Preston Whitmore. This all happens so fast. It's like, ah, you're here. It's Preston Whitmore. Ah, Preston Whitmore. Do your grandfather. Oh, he has the diary. Oh, he wants to, to go to Atlantis. Oh, he's doing a trick on you. You know? Yeah. Here it is. Yeah. Here's the sub. Go, go, go. Which <laughs> kind of works because they make Milo react as though that's what's happening. Yeah. I just feel like a little bit of slowing down in some of this would help. But yeah, it's basically when Milo says the I would look for Atlantis if I had a rowboat. And he's like, you've passed the test. I will fund the entire expedition. Oh, great. When do we start getting ready? Oh, no, you leave right now. <laughs> yes, it's fun. Eccentric rich guys, you know, fun. eccentric rich guy is silly. And he's hired the best of the best crew who we now meet as we're boarding the sub. I mean, we're introduced to a few of them through pictures. We meet Cookie, who explains the four basic food groups. <laughs> uh, Was it bacon, whiskey, lard and beans something like that yeah something like that i remember yeah. whiskey was one of them and i was like oh a little bit edgy for a disney movie <laughs> and then you saw you know chain smoking mrs packard <laughs> which apparently he just mixes those four food groups together and that's the only dish he makes slop slop Ugh. it's like you've been working in the school cafeterias right <laughs> <laughs> then we meet uh Vinny, our explosives expert <laughs> slash just obsessive yes Explosives enjoyer. I love his list of things that he's got in his box. It's very funny. Now we meet Commander Rourke for a second. Yep, we do. The sub takes off. We do get that great James Newton Howard theme. Yeah. Da, 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 da. And the submarine looks very cool. It's so very cool. reminiscent of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And again, the combination of 3D and 2D is so seamless because the sub is clearly in large part, if not an entirety, a 3D model. But like then we see all the 2D characters through the orange sub window and you you don't even blink like it just looks perfect. It's awesome. Yeah, it looks really good. Then Milo goes to his room and we meet the rest of our characters. Well, he has disturbed it yet. <laughs> he meets Mole <laughs> when he disturbs the dirt on the bed. Mole is obsessed. <laughs> Basically, he's a person who thinks he's a mole. I mean, yes, he's such a weird little guy. He's it's, obsessed with digging and dirt. This it's, is it's so weird. Fun Disney character design again, exactly. though, where it's like, why can't a guy just be an orb? <laughs> <laughs> why can't he be ridiculous? He's an orb. He has like telescoping lens things on his eyes that make it look like he's got telescoping eyes that will reach out way far. Yes. We meet Dr. Sweet, who's probably one of the most normal. <laughs> Easily the most like together. Sane. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I quite like Dr. Sweet. Me too. I was trying to decide if I had a favorite of these characters. It's very hard to pick. Mole is the funniest. Yes, Mole is the most ridiculous. I really like Vinny too, though. Vinny's very, very funny. Definitely as a kid, those two were the ones I loved. Vinny especially. I really like Sweet, though. Yeah, as an adult, it's like, well, Joshua's sweet. He's like a really good guy. <laughs> very dependable. And I think this is where we meet Audrey also, right? Or did we meet her earlier? I mean, we like see her earlier for a second. We haven't really properly met her. I think she's basically the last one. 
Yeah. And we hear, well, we don't see Mrs. Packard for a long time. We just hear her making announcements. She's the radio operator. She's the best of the best announcements maker. Yes, I love her announcements. They're so terrible. (laughs) I mean, I said that Moliere was the funniest. Mrs. Packard might actually be. (laughs) That's the thing. Like every time you meet a character, you're like, oh, that's my new favorite character. Right. They're hilarious. And we just slowed down and spent more time with these characters. I mean, we do get a nice little slowdown with them in a in a in a little bit. Not yet. Yeah. But this. Yeah. All this stuff here is still going pretty fast. It is because Milo immediately goes up. He gives a slideshow about like Atlantis and you. (laughs) Yeah. So this is kind of where we see everybody together for the first time. He does a little presentation basically about the Leviathan, what maybe it is. And then Suddenly we have the Leviathan attack. (laughs) It's estimated that the crystal might be able to generate 1.21 gigawatts of power. (laughs) That's my one. Just one. Alrighty. So it's like, all right, Milo has gotten one second to breathe. Yep. He's giving a presentation. The Leviathan's here. It's a sea monster. The sub's broken. Escape immediately. It's, It's not a sea monster. It's a machine. It's a machine. Yeah. The sub is destroyed. Like the Ulysses. We barely knew you. And again, this is all very cool, very enjoyable. It's a great little action scene. I love the sub pods, even though yeah. it don't make no sense. Well, you know, they, they're prepared for any eventuality. <laughs> of the cool looking things in this movie that make no sense, this is not the most egregious. That's at the end. <laughs> There's a great joke of Mrs. Packard being on the phone yep. with one of her grandma friends or whatever. <laughs> one of those old lady friends. And it's kind of Star Wars-y, I was thinking. A lot of this, you know, when we're cutting between the sub pods, it's very like red one checking in, red two, you know. When Milo's giving his presentation, that feels a little bit like aliens. Yeah. There's a lot of influences in this thing. And it really is like we want to do a Disney action adventure movie. Yeah, that's really what it is. They want to prove you could do that in animation, which you can. Yeah. Could do it a little better than this. Here's what I think the the problem is. They were trying to do a movie without music, but they'd been working for years on doing the animated musicals. So it's a kind of a different way of storytelling if you're doing a musical and if you're just doing a regular movie. And I just don't think they had the timing and everything right to do an action adventure movie. Do you know what I mean? I feel like they should have gotten directors who do that sort of movie that and not musicals. Yeah. And maybe it would have been better or I don't know. I think also the script again To me, so much of the problem with this is that they had that super. Well, then you get a screenwriter who does. Exactly. They had that super (laughs) long script. And rather than going, we should just cut out the best bit of this. Right. Like famously with the script for the original Star Wars, George Lucas had like this entire saga planned out. That was not exactly what the Star Wars saga ended up being. But he had this whole idea and. It was this super long script and nobody was going to make his, you know, nine hour, incredibly expensive special effects movie. And so his wife, you know, Marsha was like, all right, there's this bit in the middle that's like basically just this attack on this Death Star thing. Right. Like and it just kind of is this self-contained adventure. Just make that the movie. I think that's what 
you know, they should have done with this. They should have been like, well, what's the best part of this movie? I think also they just they fell so in love with designing the city of Atlantis. And I truly think, again, this movie should be all these fun and likable characters on a journey to Atlantis. Because following this scene with the sub, you know, to, to skip ahead a little bit, we basically get a big montage. The whole journey is like montage where it's like we run into this thing. We run into that thing. We have to make a bridge. We're going to have to dig. Oh, no, the digger's broken. Milo keeps screwing up like and it's you know, we pause at a couple places, but mostly it just feels like it's one montage to get to Atlantis. It really does. And it's like each of these things could be a scene, just a full good scene. And then you'd feel a little more connected probably to Milo. Yeah. Who you're like, Milo's the worst. <laughs> yeah, because again, if, as you say, like it is this montage just of him screwing up and it's like, you guys should probably run him over. <laughs> right. I actually had a little more sympathy with him because you feel like he was given this journal. They immediately got in the submarine. So he really hasn't had time to decipher it, right? He's there because he's the linguist and he's trying to decipher the book and, you know, lead them to Atlantis. And you feel like by the time they've, you know, gotten to the, basically it's, you know, an underground cavern that has air. So they're like driving and hiking and stuff. And he's making all these mistakes in this guiding when has he had time to sit down and read the darn book? Like <laughs> exactly. You feel like it's been 24 hours since he was just given the book. And of course he's making mistakes and everybody's just mad at him and they start picking on him because he keeps making mistakes and leaving him out. And also, you know, they're a team who's been together and already been on adventures and he's the outsider. And I was starting to feel sorry for him. Right. When he's eventually invited to the campfire, which isn't really much after this, because, again, it's all so quick. Yeah. But this is where we finally sit down and kind of get to know our characters a little better. But to your point, this is sweet is like, you know, like, how many times have you read that book? Like, what do you think you're going to find in it? Haven't you read it? And it's like, when? No, he hasn't. <laughs> How long have we had here? <laughs> they weren't even in the main su big sub a whole day before it got destroyed. <laughs> I know that's that's a, almost an accidentally funny moment when Rourke is like seven hours ago, we set out with 200 men and women. And you're like, um, couldn't it have taken longer. Couldn't we have pretended like there was more time passed when we weren't watching? I mean, how <laughs> far can you even get in a submarine in seven hours? Submarines, I don't know. I don't know. know. <laughs> I mean, obviously, it's a very fast submarine and they got to wherever they needed to be in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean in seven hours. <laughs> I'm not a submarine expert, but I feel like if I Googled some stuff about 1914, I might. Uh... It's just one of those things where it's like, um, kind of needed to make us feel like the journey is taking longer, even if obviously you're only right. showing it to us in a short period of time. That's what montages are for. I think this movie should have just been the journey to find Atlantis. They find it at the very end and the villain shouldn't have been one of their own party. Because I, I don't know how you do that if you don't go to Atlantis. It should have been Belloc, basically, from Indiana Jones. Have yourself a rival cackling maniac bad guy. Or just try to do the Atlantis stuff at the very, very end, I guess. But this is the part of the movie I really like. And I think this scene where they're sitting at the campfire and we get everyone's backstories is my favorite scene. I debate between this scene 
and the scene where we're getting introduced to all the characters on the sub. Yeah. Because those are the two scenes where you get all the fun characters together. Yeah. But I think it's this one. I kind of picked this one, too, especially the part where, you know, they're learning everybody's backstory. And he's like, what's Mole's deal? And yes. Sweet's like, you don't want to know Mole's deal. Audrey, you told me and I'm still mad at you for telling me I didn't want to know. And you trust me, you do not want to know his deal. <laughs> And it's even funnier how he says it, right? Because oh, it he's really like, is. It really is. You shouldn't have told me, but you did. Now I'm telling you. <laughs> you don't want to know. I should have known you would have it down better, having seen it more than me. Exactly. I think I find all the backstory stuff just the right amount of moving. And then the scene ends on that awesome joke. First of all, mole, you know, digging into the ground. <laughs> but then just... Joshua Sweet shutting down any concept of a mole backstory, just being like, no, yep. no, no, we're not doing that. Oh, it's funny. You know, and again, Sweet, I think, has the most interesting backstory where he's half African-American, half Native American. Mm -hmm. And he talks about going to Howard U and everything. And it's like, this is a really interesting, you know, just by adding these like racial aspects, like it's a very interesting character. Like that kind of yeah. adds a lot to it and it's like boy i wish he was in the movie <laughs> and it's interesting the way that they did you know collect a very international crew yep and that's kind of fun i mean aubrey is also an awesome character you know this young puerto rican woman <laughs> there's you know the funny joke about her sister who's got a <laughs> shot at the title and yeah i just want to be with these characters i just want to hang out with them Mm -hmm. That's the problem with this movie. You made you made this bit too good. <laughs> and then everything catches on fire. Yeah, because of the fireflies. Yes. <laughs> I don't know why they decided there were fireflies that could actually set fires. It's just a thing, I guess, to get them moving on a little farther, maybe to get Milo injured because Milo gets separated from everybody else and he has an actual injury with blood. What? Yep. Got some blood in this Disney movie. And he meets Kida and the other Atlanteans briefly. Who we've seen briefly before. They're kind of wearing funny monster masks and stuff. But she heals him with her crystal, which, you know, they don't even make a big deal of. But he does follow them and chase them. And that's kind of amusing. And then... Suddenly, they have found Atlantis. Yay. <laughs> Movie's over. <laughs> they drive all their many silly trucks over this rickety bridge over some lava to get to the actual city, which is just kind of a circle in the middle of this volcano thing. Right. The circular shape of the city. They worked really hard on the shape of the city. Yeah. And all this stuff. And they tried to make it close to Plato's design, which is this big idea of a circular. Because Plato... Describe the city of Atlantis in really, really like super crystal clear detail, so much so that people thought it was real, despite the fact that he also gave precise geographic coordinates for where it was and it isn't. Like, <laughs> it's in the Mediterranean Sea. We knew it wasn't there. Right. And people decided that every single thing he had said about the city was correct and real, except for its location. <laughs> and it's like, or he made it up. Because I don't know if you noticed that it was ruled by gods and stuff like. <laughs> yeah, obviously, none of the mythology makes it into this movie. It has to be more technological, more kind of sci fi. Yeah. And there's 
To get here, you have to go through a volcano. That's obviously going to be important. Yeah. This is the first hint we get that Rourke is going to be a bad guy. Is Helga being like, Commander, there were not supposed to be people here. And he's like, it doesn't change the mission parameters or something like that. And you're like, because, mm. of course, we meet Kida and some other Atlanteans. And they talk first about how first only Milo is communicating with them because their language is... Oh, this is so dumb. This is the dumbest thing in the movie. But then because their language is like a proto language that the other languages everybody speaks has come from, they are easily able to learn and speak any language instantly, including all slang. No, 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 no. It's fine. Whatever. Here's the thing. Like, that's a great throwaway line. I can I can let it go. You know, whatever. I can let it go. I really don't want you speaking Atlantean the entire movie. I don't want them speaking Atlantean (laughs) the entire movie, but this is the dumbest possible explanation. Here's what you do. The crystal is translating our words. Done. Yeah. Since the crystal can do everything else. It really can. They are (laughs) magical crystals that allow, obviously, since we saw little Kida when she was a baby, when the city of Atlantis sank under the into the earth. And now it's still her. But she takes them to see her father, the king, who is not happy to see them because he doesn't like outsiders. Again, do we have time to do the Tarzan dad again? (laughs) So he tells them to leave, but Rourke asks if they could just stay one night, you know, to rest and recuperate. And of course, at this point, you're already going, oh, yeah. And to do whatever bad stuff it is you want to do, huh? I'll say when I watched this as a high schooler, the twist did surprise me. Oh, okay. Like I didn't remember it well enough from childhood that he was a bad guy. This time I did remember it right from from that time I watched it in high school. It wasn't though like, wow, what a twist. It was like, oh, okay. Yeah, I definitely the first time I saw this, you know, again, as a high schooler, like as a sentient person, I was like, well, Helga is the very suspicious one. Rourke gives that nice speech about all his men being dead. And then Helga is sort of the good, the better one, at least. And Rourke obviously is the bad guy. It it kind of worked for me then. I can't say how it would work for me as an adult because I remembered it. Yeah, I remembered he was going to be the villain, so I didn't get twisted. <laughs> this is, though, when we basically have Milo and Kita. <laughs> Hanging out. This is my least favorite part of the movie is this what feels like a super long stretch, even though it's not of Rourke, you know, just going, all right, all the good characters are going to stay here. Milo and (laughs) Kida, you're the movie for like 20 minutes. So we find out Kida is over 8000 years old. She's 8800 years old. Yeah, at least she's very concerned for their city because They've kind of lost their technology. She feels like they're fading. This is where she had she had this disagreement with her father about maybe these people can help us. And he's like, no, we don't need help. We're just fine. We've preserved our civilization. We don't need to improve or better it. Engaging with these outsiders is highly illogical, Kita. <laughs> So Kita is showing Milo the city and that's pretty cool. I mean, you know, it's pretty city. She can't read Atlantean. So this is I mean, we just have to get this out of the way. This movie in the back half. It's another reason this back half is not as good. It's a real white savior narrative where the white guy has to come in, tell you how to read your language, save your princess who gets turned into a rock 
and teach you how to use your own technology. And it's there's better ways to do this. And they don't. Yeah. For a movie that's trying to be anti-colonialism and gets close, like it has moments where it does that well. Yeah. But then it does this. And again, there's there's other ways you can do it. Yeah. So when she discovers that Milo can read, she is like, oh, I need to show you this mural. She doesn't even understand about the crystal that's the heart of Atlantis because and here's the thing. I suspect what happened is she's a child. Her dad never taught her anything about it because he didn't want her to know. But I do kind of feel like living almost 9000 years, you could have found more stuff out on your own. I mean, exactly. How long does it take to invent a language like, you know, right? in 9000 years, you feels like you would have just figured it out uh, <laughs> with that much time to devote to one problem. But like, here's here's how you could do this. And it's not a white guy teaching brown people their own language. There's a clue in the book that she lacks. Right. Right. She's like, oh, you have the book. Does it say anything about where to find information about the crystal? Yes, we have to go to this mural. You know, like that can be. Oh, how... I know where that might be. Or, exactly. You know... That can be how his arrival leads to this discovery in a less absurdly patronizing way. They didn't really need to make her be 8,000 years old either. Yeah, right? that also that's deranged. They yes. could have been the descendants of the original Atlanteans who have, because over time, an isolated group like that could lose language and technology, especially because they were thrown into a survival situation. They're trapped underground where they used to be, you know, out in the ocean. So they're having to relearn how to live. You can easily lose technologies that way. That is a thing that happens if you're going through multiple generations. Just throwing that detail out about being 8,800 is like the detail of, you know, they know the root language so they can speak all languages or other things in this movie where you're like, back up, back up, back up. <laughs> you can, let's let's talk about this for a moment. Yeah. You can't just throw a grenade like that out here. <laughs> and of course, so Milo is able to translate the mural and they discover they're looking for the crystal, which is the power source of all the life in Atlantis. And it's called the heart of Atlantis, but they don't know where it is. And Milo is like, there's got to be a page missing from my book because it seems like it's going to talk about it. And then it goes on to something else. And surprise, surprise. Rourke has the missing page about the heart of Atlantis and they've all got guns and they're going to threaten Milo and Kida until they can, because they are there. Their whole purpose is to find the crystal and take it back to the surface and sell it for money. So they're all about the money. Despite the fact that there are four scenes in this movie explaining what the crystal is and what it does, I have no idea what the crystal is and what it does. Like, I get the vague <laughs> idea of without the crystal, everyone in Atlantis dies. But beyond like, because, again, like first they introduce it as it's a power source. And then they're like, no, it's not a power source. Well, except it also is because it powers technology, but it also powers life. And then at the end, it's like, no, it's actually a big weapon. And. Just shut up about the crystal. 90% <laughs> of this movie is talking about the crystal. I don't need it. But I want to say about the crystal, Plato's original story about Atlantis said that they had this mineral, uh, I believe it's called Orichalcum, that was just 
gold but red. <laughs> like it was literally just the mineral of gold, but it looks red. And in many later versions of Atlantis stories, including this one, that gets turned into magic or superior technology or some kind of, you know, MacGuffin mineral. And this is no different. It's the magic MacGuffin. Originally, he was just like, they got gold, right? But get this, it's red. <laughs> so then, of course, we're going to find the heart of Atlantis and Milo's given the page to translate. Speaking of scenes that take so long, she slowly walks out to the crystal. She slowly floats up into the crystal. She slowly gets consumed by the ghost of her mom. Mom status is ghost. Crystal. (laughs) Or crystal or something. She slowly walks out. Oh, yeah. And it's like, I'm I'm tapping my watch like this scene could have had mole in it. <laughs> but it doesn't. It just has Rourke and Helga and Milo. Why is it mole more interested in crystal stuff? Like that's dirt adjacent. I guess. It's a mineral. Yeah. You'd think he'd have something to say about the crystal. Kida joins with the crystal and then she turns into like a walking crystal woman. So she's like, it's a very cool effect. Like, they probably worked really hard on that effect, and I'm betting that's partly why this scene takes so long. Oh, yeah. Again, they were so excited about the visuals in this movie. And again, rightly so. Every visual is good. But they needed a little more time on the story and the script. Yeah. They uh, they so clearly came up with what can we make Atlantis look like and the sub look like and everything look like first, and then went... Oh, should we make a story? <laughs> What's on cable? Stargate. So then, of course, they then they get her up out of this area where it was. They lock her in this like holding tank, Crystal Kida, because they're going to take her back. OK, so Milo here is guilt tripping everyone, trying to get them to abandon Rourke, which they do. Yeah. But he's being a real snot about it. I was like. You're right, but shut up. Because <laughs> he's like, oh, I bet you can buy fruit stands with a lot of money. You'll make your father proud if you have a lot of money. You'll. Ha- it's like, dude, you got to have money. I'm sorry. I don't like it either. We live under capitalism. Like, I mean, again, like, I guess he's right, but he just strikes me as very whiny. <laughs> like, yeah, man, money's good. <laughs> I mean, again, I don't know. You got to have it. Yeah. And I felt like they just took joshua out of this scene because again well basically when they're in the scene where they're trying to find where the crystal is and it's near the king where he hangs out the king gets attacked like punched and so sweet dr sweet is like hey there was not going to be any hurting people and so he is going to help the king try to feel better and we don't see him again for quite a while because he is basically just taking care of the king this whole time. And so he's not part of the whole the crew turns against Rourke and decides to stay with Milo, who was getting left behind. But I feel like basically he's the first one to be like, Rourke, you're wrong. Right. Though it it just doesn't it's not doesn't feel like it's as impactful as everybody else doing it all at once. I didn't realize that that scene was supposed to be him going, Rourke, you're wrong, mm-hmm. because it's not like he says that or makes it clear. Right. The thing is, they introduce the fact that, again, he's not he's both African-American and Native American. So he really should have more to say about a story, which is, again, 
very much colonialism, right? Very much like this is a metaphor for like indigenous people. We're coming in, we're exploiting their stuff. We even talk about being an adventure capitalist and, you know, stealing stuff for museums, which is a really interesting line for a Disney movie, by the way. Yeah, it's like, whoa, we're really going there. Movie that's a little racist. Um, And so it's like. If you're going to make that part of his backstory and you're going to make this the story, it feels like he should have more to say about it. It feels like he should see, you know, the very charged imagery, I would say, of Kida being locked up in a cage and really have something to say. Yeah. Again, it's it's like so many other things where it's a missed opportunity. Yeah. You throw this detail out and then you don't capitalize on it. And I don't really want him to sit there and give a big sad speech about the exploitation of his peoples. Yeah, because you don't want to have racism in a Disney movie, as you've said several times. I really don't. It's always a downer. It's a downer in this. Yeah, just it's and they don't handle it well because Disney movies can't. And I feel that's true again with this. That's why I think just cut, you know, the Atlantis bit out of it. (laughs) That would be a fun journey. And we don't need we really don't need it. So then we have um, after Rourke and Helga leave with the Crystal Kida, then we go back and we have a whole thing. This is like the king's longest talking section where he explains the crystal stuff again. And he's like, come here, Milo. And you're like, oh, Leonard Nimoy on his deathbed. I'm going to be moved. And he's like, here's the deal with the crystal. And you're like, shut (laughs) up. (laughs) As my dying words. I'm going to read a Wikipedia page about the crystal. <laughs> Which is why, of course, I recognized the way the actress says crystal. Because they say the word crystal so many times so in the movie. And the king dies so sad. Yes. And it should be noted also just while we're like pointing out the stuff in this movie that maybe hasn't aged the best or that could be handled better is, you know, Kida, who's introduced as kind of a warrior woman who you might like to see in the final battle is literally objectified. I mean, (laughs) literally turned into a physical object and just is a thing to get at the end of the movie. Bit disappointing. Yeah. Like so much of this. Anyway, the king does. Well, after he's done reading his (laughs) Wikipedia article. (laughs) And we've got to Milo's moment to be like, we got to go stop him and get her back. Blah, blah, blah. And so they wake up all the flying fish ships using the crystals so they can fly. See, the crystal was a weapon of war. We were going to rage war on the whole world. Wow, that really sounds like something we should spend more time discussing. Yeah, I know. Anyway, bleh. Sound of me dying. I don't necessarily think the flying fish ship things are only weapons of war. I think, I mean, some of them definitely are weapons, but, uh, you know, flying vehicles, flying vehicles are cool. They get flying cars before we do. Mom, if you get hit with one, you're going to die. It's true. That's not a vehicle. What is? But this is I mean, this is where the movie gets good again, because, hey, all our characters are back together and we're having action and fun. Yep. Although there is a scene where, you know, they have to stop dead as Mole goes. So here's what I think the crystal is. (laughs) (laughs) So Rourke is trying to escape through the volcano shaft, of course. Okay, so he is escaping on a hot air balloon. But more importantly, they bought a they brought on the submarine just in case 135 <laughs> biplanes, which are fired via ballista. <laughs> it's incredible. And a hot air balloon. Well, yes. You actually see um, Milo playing with a model of the hot air balloon at the very beginning of the movie. 
interestingly, I, Rourke and Helga start fighting because they're having, they're like, we have to lighten the load because we can't, you know, the hot air balloon is getting stopped. And he's like, and all right, he's murder. Like, murder. He's like, I'm throwing you off because he's a horrible person and all he cares about is himself. She's like, I prefer that you didn't. Yep. And so then she destroys the balloon. She dies, by the way. Rourke does die. Well, she also dies. Helga. Helga dies. She does. It's pretty surprising. Kind of off screen. But so Milo ends up kind of killing Rourke. He takes a piece of the glass from the tank where I thought he takes a shard of crystal. He takes a shard of something. So I was not sure if it was a shard of her or if it's a shard of the glass, because, you know, they put her in this tank and it's got like a glass porthole. And when they close it, it kind the glass porthole kind of fogs up. And I thought he took a piece of that and cuts Rourke with it like her crystalliness affected the glass. And then he turns into a creepy crystal. Yes. According to Wikipedia, it's a crystal charged shard of glass. Oh, by the way, before I died, I forgot to tell you the crystal charges glass. Yeah, whatever. I mean, he turns into this weird crystal monster. And at first you think he's just turned into like a statue, but no, then he's still attacking. Which again, it's like, hey, I'd love to see more of that. (laughs) I'd love to see like just one full minute of crystal monster work. But he ends up exploding. So they get Kida back to the right spot in the city and she floats up. You got to stand on the bullseye, you see. You got to stand on the letter A. I'm sorry, the Atlantean letter, whatever it's called. And she floats up and she basically wakes up the Iron Giant shield generators <laughs> that go around the city and put up a big shield dome over the whole city to protect it from the lava because, you know, we disrupted the volcano and it's erupting, of course. It looks great. It all looks great. It looks really cool. Lava and then the lava cools and then crumble, 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 crumble and shield. Oh, so cool. And then Kida comes back down out of the crystal and doesn't get absorbed like her mother did. So then we come to the end of the movie where Milo is going to stay in Atlantis, of course. I think it's wild that the crew gets to leave with all the treasure. The crew is leaving with some gold, a bunch of treasury stuff. But presumably the Atlanteans are like, whatever, we don't care about this stuff. Would be funny if it was red gold. (laughs) should have been red gold you're right (laughs) again they make the point about like everything in museums like they actually bring up museum colonialism in this right they have that line they're talking about you know stealing from cultures and then they get a bunch of stuff from the culture it feels well but i think it gave it it's not stealing because it was given but i still feel it's it just feels like a mixed message again it's exactly what we were saying like disney movie just Just probably stay away from this. Stay away from all this stuff and just make a fun adventure movie. Fewer, fewer politics, more explosions. How about that? And more songs. So one of the few things I always remembered from this movie was Dr. Sweet doing his chiropractic neck adjustments on Milo. Don't ask me why that particular thing stuck in my head. I always remembered he did it twice. He does it once early in the movie, but I always remembered at the end Milo being like, hey, could you do that one more time? And he adjusts him and, you know, then they're going to go. It's like, I don't know why. I always remember that part of the movie. It's very silly. The funnier part about them leaving with all the treasure 
is them in Whitmore's office. Yes. They're all wearing the fancy clothes and they're like, I don't know. And they're all given a crystal for themselves, a piece of the crystal. And I love how in that last scene, they're all wearing it a different way. Like one yes. person's got it. I think it's Cookie it has it as a false tooth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some people have it in jewelry. Some people have it, you know, there's all kinds of different ways they're wearing them. And they're all fancied up. And they're basically trying to get their story straight of what happened to everybody on the expedition. And Mole keeps saying what really happened and they're like no mole cookie keeps saying what really happened okay mole is busy digging into the flower pot that's right that's the thing mole is digging into the flower pot again mole never has a normal comedic game like even for a comic relief character he's not doing the obvious thing that's right that's i forgot it was cookie he's taking off all his clothes to go into a plant pot (laughs) yep that's what he's doing in this scene, just to be clear. His chuckle sounds kind of evil. Yes. But, you know, his 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 dirt chortling. Moliere is genuinely scary, which I appreciate. <laughs> he, there's, a, there's a real danger to him. Yeah. He feels like a threat. You don't want to know where he's been. <laughs> and then we see Milo and Kida back in Atlantis. It's all fixed up. They're kind of... What are they doing? They're basically carving a a king statue to represent Kida's father. And she's the queen now. She's got her big fancy queen dress. And yep. then we have that really cool pullback shot, which does look pretty amazing. Yeah. And we see the title screen again. I don't know why. See it twice. The giant pullback shot is very cool. But again, it's like, what are you saying in the story with this other than look at what we can do? Well, that's exactly what we're saying. Look how cool Atlantis is. It's amazing. Don't you wish you could live there? Too bad, so sad. (laughs) In the Renaissance era, a lot of the coolest technical shots also really have a story purpose because they had a little bit less budget and they also had less technology, so they had to use it better. Like the Beauty and the Beast CGI sequence isn't just great because it's CGI. It's great because that is, you know, the emotional heart of the movie and it has a great song. You know, all the crazy cap stuff in the Circle of Life sequence is in service of an amazing sequence. You know, take your pick. Well, basically, they were trying to do a really awesome pullback shot in Hunchback of Notre Dame. And they didn't feel like they quite got it right. So they made sure they got it right for Atlantis. Which is not a good way to make a movie. I know. You know, movies are a visual medium. Visuals are great. But I just think this movie was too much come up with the visuals and then figure out somewhere to put them in a movie. Yeah. Which is, funnily enough, what they did with Emperor's New Groove, literally, except it worked. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I don't know. But that's Atlantis. Oh, my Atlantis. <laughs> now it's time for sequel. <laughs> <laughs> OK, sequel spinoffs, remakes, rides and reboots. Supposedly, they're doing a Delarm of this, which I think we said this on the mailbag episode. This is actually a good one for Delarm. It's yep. all human characters. Except maybe Mole. Well, that's true. Whatever they do with Mole's going to be dumber. I mean, it's just not going to look as good. And I... At this point, I don't trust them to make something good, but you could make it good because clearly this is a story that can be improved quite a bit. Oh, yeah. So there's that. There are some video games that I don't know anything about. Didn't look up. Don't care. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. And there was, of course, the sequel. Now, was there anything else you wanted to talk about before the sequel? I know you're usually our park correspondent. 
They did have some meet and greet characters when the movie first came out. Could you meet the mole? I don't know about that. I know all I really saw was they had Milo and Kida. They did. They did. They had Moliere. I'm sending you the costume. (laughs) Of course they did. That's pretty cool, actually. It's as good as it could be. Yeah. I forgot to look at like every single character to see if they all had. Oh, I see. Do you know where uh, Moliere was? He was only in one of the parks. Guess which one? Disneyland Paris. May we. So that's what I was going to say next is now occasionally you can see them at Disneyland Paris in Discovery Land, which is their Tomorrowland, because it's a Jules Verne tie in. Right. Mm-hmm. Discovery Land is very much kind of a steampunk Jules Verne sort of a place. And so, of course, the characters from Atlantis are there. That's really all the location for them. They were actually going to modify the submarine voyage ride at Disneyland. When this movie was coming out, they had closed it for renovation and they were going to change it to be Atlantis themed. You know, seems like a pretty easy reskin kind of thing. But because the film didn't succeed, there was a lot of pushback. And so they changed it to a Finding Nemo ride instead. There you go. So that's why Disneyland has the Finding Nemo ride instead of, you know, an Atlantis submarine ride. Finding Nemo, which if anyone doesn't know, was the highest grossing Pixar movie for a long time. Highest grossing animated film for a long time. That thing may bake. People had Nemo fever. There was apparently going to be another sequel that didn't happen. A sequel movie for Atlantis where Helga was actually going to be the villain. She was going to have survived, but only because she'd been turned into some sort of cyborg. (laughs) So she would be like in a cyborg costume. Heck yes. And at the end of the movie, the big reveal would be that it was this cyborg who's been the menace this whole time is actually Helga. Why not? But obviously that never happened. They had big plans for all kinds of things. They were going to have the TV show. They were going to have a big sequel movie. Instead, they took, you know, three episodes of the aborted TV series and turned them into Atlantis Milo's Return. Yeah, it's yet another case where Disney has two movies that they're working on. One that they pour a ton of money into that they're convinced is going to be a success. And another that's like, Sure, Chris Sanders, we need a movie for 2002. You can work on your weird Lilo and Stitch project, whatever that is. Yes. And then uh, they they always bet on the wrong horse every time. (laughs) And they sure did here. So, yes, they were doing the thing that they were doing at this time, which is working on the television show while the movie's coming out Mm -hmm. Uh, or while the movie's being made to, you know, premiere shortly thereafter. Right. But then this movie, uh, it made no money. So... Then they did not do that. They were like, cancel all that. But they had three finished episodes, which they put together, not for the first time, into Atlantis colon Milo's return, which is a very strange name because Milo doesn't return anywhere. (laughs) At no point in the movie does he go somewhere he has been previously. I always kind of interpret it as Milo's return to Atlantis, but he doesn't leave Atlantis. He's just returning to your screens. Yeah. You've missed him so. Yeah, it's just weird. I guess. So as I said, watch this way more as a kid. Watch it again today. I have to say, I didn't hate it. It's not like I wouldn't really go out of your way for it. <laughs> but it's it's quite watch. Like last week when I watched Krog's New Groove, I would like watch five minutes, stop, do something else. Watch five minutes, stop. Because <laughs> I just kept like cringing too hard. I was like, this is unpleasant yeah. to watch. This wasn't that. It was one smooth gulp of mediocrity. The thing is just like, 
it's not a horrible idea for a TV show. You have all these characters you like mm-hmm. and you send them on adventures. And I think that's why we like this movie more as kids is because it just has the funny characters the whole time. It doesn't have anything that's long and boring. <laughs> um, now, I, I, to be clear, at least as an adult, I do think Atlantis is a better movie, but I don't know. It's OK. So what it is, obviously, Milo is now king of Atlantis and Kida is now queen of Atlantis and all of the good characters come back in Atlantis and they're like, hey, we need your help. And apparently what the premise of the show, the show is going to be called Team Atlantis, was going to be, and they were going to do, you know, one of these Disney seasons of like 28 episodes. (laughs) They keep running into different mythologies and it turns out that the mythology is Atlantean tech that got out into the world. Oh, silly. The three things in this movie are the first one is the Kraken, which I keep calling the Kraken very annoyingly. (laughs) But the Kraken is uh, another Atlantis machine like the Leviathan was in this. Right. And then they go into adventure with like coyote spirits where we find out that the Native American. I'm sorry, I forget which nation it is specifically. But that a particular Native American mythology is just they invented that mythology based on Atlantean technology, which is like, don't touch that. (laughs) And then there's one that really stupid one with Norse mythology, which sounds like it could be an interesting idea, but it's just a guy who's a friend of Pritchard's who thinks that he's the god Odin but he does have a magic spear that will allow him to bring about Ragnarok. So Odin, not real. (laughs) Ragnarok, real. Uh, And of course, the spear is also Atlantean technology. So again, they were going to do 28 episodes of this. They had episodes planned uh, for Puck and the Loch Ness Monster and the Terracotta Warriors. So it really was just going to be all mythologies because the Atlanteans kept littering. <laughs> the Atlanteans, whose whole deal is being isolated from the world, yeah. left so much stuff behind, like a ridiculous amount. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of a stupid idea. But look, you're hanging out with these good characters. All the voice actors return, except for Michael J. Fox, who is replaced by two different actors, because clearly the episodes were recorded by different people and we're not re-recording that. And of course, they had to replace Jim Varney because he had passed. Otherwise, you know, these are all just TV voice actors. Many of them are doing the Disney TV shows. The movie was directed and the show was going to be showrun in part by Ted Stones, who we've talked about in the past. Everything he touched turned to gold in Disney television. (laughs) And so, yeah, it's it's fine. (laughs) You know, much like the movie is based on it's fine. And it actually does make sense to me that I think for a kid, it's a it's a more fun movie, you know, with more of the mole and more of Vinny and more of Audrey. Yeah. And also this dumb like rock lizard character, because we have to have an animal companion if we're doing a Scooby Doo riff (laughs) named Obby. And that's where you get Frank Welker. Better believe it. Pay him his price. Frank Welker himself. Yeah. I'm broken by the Disney spinoffs, but if you have to watch one, this one won't make you want to (laughs) die. Put that on the box. Watchable, raves Isaac. (laughs) Won't make you want to die. (laughs) I didn't throw up. (laughs) One star. (laughs) As opposed to negative stars. 
So that's Atlantis, I guess. Yeah. Mom, would you recommend this movie and would you show it to a child? Would you let your child rent it from Blockbuster 472 <laughs> times? I think I would recommend this movie. Not like highly recommend, but like, yeah, it's watchable. You can enjoy it. It's not going to, you know, look bad. Again, we've mentioned in some places it's going to feel rushed and in some places it's going to feel slow. But overall, it's a fun time. There's a lot of laughing in this movie. I laughed quite a bit. Mm-hmm. I laughed more in this movie than I did in Hercules. And that one's trying for laughs. Yes. More, I feel like, right? That one is like all about being funny. And I laughed more in this one. So, you know, if I can laugh during a movie, that makes it a good time. That's right. And I would obviously show it to a child. It just, you know, it's an action adventure movie. It's it's fun. Kids are not going to really care as much about the pacing. (laughs) So, yeah, obviously I didn't like it enough to watch it as many times with you. And even we, you know, like I said, it wasn't. A favorite. We watched it because you just watched Disney movies. Yep. But like once we were old enough to be a little more discerning, we never really went back to it. And would you recommend it also? I would recommend it. I again, I think this is a fine movie. And when you look at, as you say, some of the stuff we've watched, Mm -hmm. I put this above Tarzan. I put it above Hercules. I don't know if I put it above Hunchback. I've been debating this. The other, you know, Trasdale of Wise, like, I mean, Hunchback has the great songs. Yeah. And more of an emotional core. But Atlantis is so much funnier. And the first half is, I don't know. But I might put it above that. You know, certainly above Pocahontas. Like, it's a good little movie. And again, I do want to stress. I know probably some of our listeners are like, but this is my favorite. And they're kind (laughs) of lukewarm on it. You know, it's totally fine. I get why this is some people's favorite. Because it is so different. Because, you know, the characters are so likable and the adventure is cool, but I feel like it's a little bit of a missed opportunity. I feel like this could have been a great movie and it's fine. Yeah. So that's going to do it this week on me, mom and Zimol. <laughs> Next week, we'll be back with 2002's Lilo and Stitch mentioned previously on this episode. Mom, what do you think of that one? That is one of the few movies to actually make me cry a little at the end. Wow. Well, the few movies period or well, the few Disney movies. One of the few movies. I don't often cry at movies. I am not (laughs) that sort of a person. Come on, nobody's that heartless. (laughs) (laughs) I cry at a few movies. I don't say I don't cry at any movies, but I don't cry at very many. So until next time, when mom's going to cry on air in the podcast, and you're all going (laughs) to she's making a face. (laughs) So until next week, when we're crying at Lilo and Stitch, I'm me. (laughs) And I'm mom. And it all started with a mouse. (laughs) 